Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is an exciting historical story about astronaut John Glenn, President John F. Kennedy, and the battleground of the Cold War. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living author interview series, our guest today is Jeff Shessel. Jeff Shessel is author of the new book titled Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. Jeff Sheschel will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates June 23rd, and we'll have links and details to Jeff Sheschel's Zoom presentation for Smithsonian Associates in our show notes. At the height of the Cold War, President John F. Kennedy saw outer space exploration as a race for survival, and one that America was losing. The Soviets seemed unstoppable in space. They had sent the first satellite into orbit, the first animal into orbit, and then, in 1961, the first man. The military implications were clear. The United States needed to catch up. When John Glenn blasted off aboard Friendship 7 on February 20, 1962, he carried America's hopes into orbit and into a new and perilous Cold War battleground. John Glenn was perfectly suited to his mission. Though other astronauts called him the Boy Scout, They saw his ambition, his drive, and his fierceness of purpose. John Glenn's historic flight did not itself win the space race, but it did shift the momentum by putting the United States on the path to the moon. Drawing on his new book, Mercury Rising, author Jeff Shessel examines how the astronauts' heroics lifted the nation's hopes in what Kennedy called the hour of maximum danger. Our guest today, Jeff Shessel's new book, Mercury Rising, is one of the Washington Post's 20 books to read this summer. Mercury Rising is a riveting history of the epic orbital flight that put America back into the space race. If the United States couldn't catch up to the Soviets in space, how could it compete with them on Earth? Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian associate and author, Jeff Shessel. Jeff Seschel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. We're going to talk, of course, about Mercury Rising, your new book. We're also going to be talking a little bit about your Smithsonian Associates presentation upcoming. And I wonder if you'd just tell us briefly about how you're going to kind of address our audience, especially using Zoom. We're all on Zoom these days. Maybe tell us a little bit briefly about the presentation and uh, what you'll cover. You bet. You bet. Well, like uh, like most people, I, I, I wish um, uh, these events would all go back to in person, um, but we're not yeah, there yet too. for everything. Yeah, um, yeah. And so so we will make do. And one of the things that's uh, nice, actually, about uh, getting to talk to everybody by Zoom is that I've had a chance to pull together some really just fantastic photographs and, and not just photographs of, of John Glenn or, or John Kennedy um, and, uh, you know, various uh, uh pieces of uh, machinery that were that were bound for outer space, but also some of the artifacts and, and even uh, images of documents that I found in the Glenn archives and elsewhere that I think really can can bring this to life. So I'm excited to, to share those in, in my conversation um, uh, with uh, with the audience. Um, in terms of what we'll cover, uh, I, I want to tell the story of, of John Glenn's uh, uh, orbit of the Earth, but I, I want to do it in, in context. Um, the story really that I'm telling, uh, the, the larger story that I'm telling is not just what happened and, 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 and that story in itself is pretty exciting, but, but why it was significant. Why did it matter that, that John Glenn succeeded in, in orbiting the earth in February, 1962? And 
frankly, what would have happened if he hadn't succeeded in that? And that really takes us uh, really to the heart of the Cold War conflict with the Soviet Union. This was, we talk about a space race, and it was certainly that. We were competing with the Russians. But this was not a race like you would have, you know, on foot at the at the Olympics or something. This was not a good-natured competition. This was an existential struggle. The sense in the United States and across the free world was pretty well described by John Kennedy when he ran for president in 1960. He said, if the Soviets control space, they can control Earth. That was the fear. And that more than anything else, more than scientific discovery, more than sense of adventure, that is why it was so important that we went to space and why John and, and, and why John Glenn orbited the Earth. Well, you mentioned the photographs, and, and I have to say, I, I've got a copy of the book here in my hands, and I, I loved the photos. They're just wonderful. You really um, had access to some great oh, stuff. Thank you. Yeah. And and there's a there's a couple in there, you know John Glenn at age seventeen. That that's remarkable. What a remarkable image! He just is a fresh faced kind of a Hollywood screen idol look. He he's this very engaging you know person. I, I just I just think that the man is is a hero, and I think I think we do need more heroes. And you really get that in those photos. But you write that John Glenn was different from other from some of the other Mercury astronauts. He was very at ease during the media events and press conferences. He seemed to even be enjoying himself at times. What was it about that era, in particular, John Glenn, and what he represented that that really you wanted to write about? Well, in part, it's it's what you just suggested, which is that, I mean, he was a kid from from the heartland. He was from a little town called New Concord, Ohio, which is about 70 miles east of of Columbus, Ohio, and just really out there in in the middle of kind of rolling hills and and farmlands. It had a population of about a thousand people, and it was a patriotic town. It was a a religious town. It was primarily Presbyterian. Uh, Glenn always said everybody in town either belonged to one Presbyterian church or the Presbyterian church across the street. Um, And um, he really came from that America, which by the 1950s, 1960s seemed to be the American past. It seemed to be lost, but, but Glenn brought it forward and to to many Americans, particularly of the middle-class white variety. um, This was a very comforting sense of America, but at the same time, Glenn was not a figure of the past. He was leading America into this, brave new world into this new arena of outer space. And uh, if you doubted it for a second, you just took a look at those images in the newsreels of John Glenn in that silver spacesuit. And uh, you saw that he, he was um, he was on the cusp of something incredibly exciting and incredibly meaningful. He was also a, a real, he was a natural in front of the cameras, as you mentioned. He, he, um, so when NASA introduced its astronauts to the nation and to the world in April of 1959, it held a press conference at NASA headquarters, which at the time was, was across the street from the White House. And the astronauts walked onto the stage, and only one of them was known to the reporters in the room. Uh, it was John Glenn. He was already famous. He had become famous a couple of years earlier in 1957 as a test pilot. He had set a speed record flying a jet, a Crusader jet, from Los Angeles to uh, to Brooklyn in three hours and, and 23 minutes. And uh, he wound up on the front page of every newspaper in the country. He wound up being invited to 
be a contestant on Name That Tune, which was a popular game show on CBS. And and he was on that game show and successfully, I should add, uh, over the course of, of a number of weeks. And so the public knew him and the press knew him very well. And he just had an ease in front of the cameras. He was able to be humble, but funny and talk about his family and talk about his faith with an ease that none of the other astronauts uh, could replicate. They wanted to talk about flying planes and ultimately flying spacecraft. Glenn was happy to talk about all of that, but he was happy to talk about the other things as well. And so the cameras and the, and the spotlights just fixated on, on John Glenn. And so the celebrity that he already had going in only became magnified in that moment. Mm-hmm. Well, that moment, you know, some of that took place in 1962, and, and, and many of our audience are going to remember that time. But we many might not be re, really be able to recall the politics surrounding uh, John, Glenn and John Glenn's orbits around Earth. And you refer to this as, you know, uh, the Cold War period, uh, you know, losing the space race. Uh, those kinds of things were all at play. Maybe go into a little bit more detail about what was going on politically that led to this flight that impacted the world. Absolutely. Well, there was a lot of political churn and conflict about space and about the state of the U.S. space program, even before there was a U.S. space program. The Soviets, of course, began the space race in the fall of 1957 by sending Sputnik, the satellite, into orbit. And the United States hadn't hadn't done that yet. And its own efforts uh, to to do that were were failing. Its own rockets were exploding on the launch pad or or going into the sea rather than sending the payloads into into space. And so America begins the, the space race in a distant second place. And this continues as the Soviets rack up first after first after first. They send the first animal into orbit, the dog, Laika. They land the the first, they crash land um, purposefully, crash crash land the first unmanned spacecraft on the moon, the first time anything built by human beings had touched the the lunar surface. One thing after another, they, they were the first to photograph the far side of the moon, which had never been seen before. And so there was a sense, very real sense in the United States and across the free world that America was falling farther and farther behind in this new and, and, and very important competition. And fears began to proliferate uh, that the Soviets were going to build a nuclear base on the moon. Never mind that it would be easier, one would think, to, to fire a nuclear missile at the U.S. from Siberia than all the way from the moon. But this is the kind of thing that was very seriously discussed by not just by members of the public, but by experts, defense experts and academics and others as a very real possibility that the Soviets would build a space station that would float above the United States armed to the teeth with nuclear missiles, essentially a permanent state of nuclear blackmail for the United States. So these fears were building and ultimately forced Eisenhower to do something that he didn't want to do, which was to create NASA in 1958 and to create a manned space program, Project Mercury, that he never really believed in. He never really saw any purpose in sending human beings into space. And Kennedy inherited many of the same conflicts and the same ambiguity. He inherited a a space program uh, with very low morale. It was very far behind not only the Soviets, but behind where it was supposed to be at that point, behind its own benchmarks and its own milestone. And he faced a very immediate question of whether he was going to continue with all of this. 
And uh, never mind going to the moon. That was a, a goal um, that, that came up later. But the immediate question facing Kennedy when he took office in 1961, should he just cancel Project Mercury? Hmm. Yeah, the book is is excellent. It, it, of course, the title is Mercury Risings, getting great reviews. And we do picture John Glenn as this hero in this silver suit, this really courageous man for going up in space. Yet you write that Glenn had... He had some perceptions and feelings and some emotions during the voyage. So maybe give us an example of what he was kind of feeling going through while he was orbiting the Earth. Well, the the period of, of time uh, after Glenn had been chosen for the flight, um, he was chosen in the, in the fall of, of 1961, but he didn't fly until the end of February uh, 1962. And that was because there were all sorts of problems that forced postponements. His, his flight was, was scrubbed. His launch was scrubbed 10 times during a four month period. And it was scrubbed for all kinds of reasons, all sorts of technical problems with the rocket problems with the capsule problems with his spacesuit, and problems with the weather, by the way, which was not the fault of anybody at NASA, but they needed uh, we- the weather to be reasonably calm if he splashed down in stormy seas, then uh, he might have you know, survived space only to, to die at sea. So all of these things were, were confounding NASA. And Glenn sat in isolation much of the time at Cape Canaveral and, and, and ruminated and worried and really began to reckon with the fact that as calm as, as he appeared publicly, that he knew that he might be the first American to die in space. And he began to think about the messages that he wanted to leave for his teenage children and for his wife in the event that he didn't come back safely. And one of the things that I found, and I'll talk about this um, in my presentation at the Smithsonian, but one of the things that, that I found in the Glenn archives had never been published before was a script that he had written for a reel-to-reel recording that he made for his children uh, that he wanted to be played in the event that he didn't come back alive. And it's it's a very frank, very chilling script. He says, if you hear this, I've been killed. And he talks about God and he talks about the afterlife and he talks about his funeral and how he wants his children to to uh, conduct themselves at a funeral at Arlington where there probably wouldn't be a body to bury because he might have died in space or the rocket might have exploded. I mean, it is really frank chilling stuff, as I said, and, and he made another recording for, for his wife. And when Glenn finally got the, 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 the go signal that he was going to lift off and on February 20th, and he was strapped into his capsule sitting atop the Atlas rocket, he was patched through to, to his wife, Annie. And one of the last things that he said to Annie before liftoff was, did you get the recordings that I sent you? It's very much on his mind that he might not come back. We're with Jeff Sheschel. Jeff Sheschel will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates coming up here Wednesday, June 23rd. We're going to put links up to where you can find out more about the presentation at Smithsonian Associates. The book, again, is wonderful. It's titled Mercury Rising. And you talk a little bit in the book about how neither President Eisenhower nor President Kennedy thought spaceflight was you know, they just didn't feel like it was all that important, either militarily or scientifically. What was it that changed President Kennedy's mind and then his support of, of this program? Well, Kennedy uh, had his hesitations, as you mentioned, um, but he did see things a little bit differently than Eisenhower. Kennedy understood that um, 
the buzzword of the day was prestige, that American prestige was at stake. And that when people saw how far behind the U.S. space program was, that they began to think, and by they I mean our allies and um, also some of our, our adversaries around the world, began to think that the, America wasn't, wasn't just behind in space, but America was falling behind militarily. And uh, that the that communism might, in fact, uh, whether we liked it or not, be the wave of the future and that this might be democracy's swan song. It did not seem that our democracy had the willpower to truly compete with the Soviets and instead seemed to be falling farther and farther behind. So Kennedy, even though he had no particular interest in men walking on the moon, I mean, he thought it was interesting, but it wasn't going to be his goal as president to make that happen, that he did recognize that this perception of America falling behind militarily, because after all, I mean, what were they riding up into space? They were riding missiles. These were the same missiles that were being used to carry nuclear payloads uh, around the world in the event of a, of a nuclear exchange. And so it wasn't that unreasonable to conclude that if you couldn't get these missiles to work to send men into space, then they weren't going to work in that other capacity as well. That wasn't the case, but it certainly seemed that way. So Kennedy understood that this was a dangerous perception to have take hold around the world, whether you're talking about in Whitehall in London or, or in the Kremlin for that matter. And so Kennedy understood that, that the United States had to compete, but he also felt like Eisenhower, like it was going to be a big drain on the national treasury and that there was no real good that was going to come of, of sending human beings into space, that it was uh, ultimately not that, that important in itself. But once Yuri Gagarin um, had orbited the earth in April of 1961, it instantly changed Kennedy's calculus. And he recognized that he needed not just to talk about the importance of space, but he needed to change the space program. He needed to infuse it with energy and money and with a goal that it might actually meet down the line, which was to get to the moon before the, the Soviet Union. It was understood we were going to be behind the Soviets for quite a long time. But Kennedy hoped that by setting a goal that was distant enough, that was going to require that much investment that was going to require that much new technology that neither side had developed yet, uh, that was going to require that kind of long-term commitment, that we had a chance, not a guarantee, but that we had a chance of beating the Soviets then. So the key players, John Glenn, uh, President Kennedy, very well known, but you write about some of the people behind the scenes of the Mercury program that just stood out. And I, and I wonder if you'd talk about them. One that jumped out at me was uh, Robert Vos or Bob Vos, maybe I'm not pronouncing yes. that right. You are pronouncing it right. Yeah, and and he he actually selected. Maybe tell us a little bit about some of these people because that I just thought that was a powerful element of the book too. Well, for me personally, one of the most wonderful aspects of of this book project was getting to know Bob Vos, mm. who is in his 90s and <laughs> lives here in the Washington area and remembers everything and just in, in incredible detail and. Robert Vos was a Navy psychologist, and he was brought into the program to represent the, the Navy in the early discussions about what makes an astronaut. I mean, they, they had to sit down and figure out, well, what are the job qualifications for an astronaut? And it wasn't totally obvious. There was some discussion early on that maybe we didn't need pilots even, maybe deep sea divers, maybe skydivers, maybe just people who with the capacity for, for great adventure 
uh, with a lot of courage, physical courage, would, would be fine. Ultimately, they and Eisenhower came around to the idea that these should be military test pilots. But, but Bob Vos was involved in, in those decisions. And then once they had set the list of criteria, then they had to go and, and pick the astronauts and put them through these incredible tests, physical and psychological, to see whether they were going to be up for this incredible task. And so uh, Bob was part of those discussions and those decisions as well, and part of the team that picked John Glenn and, and the other six who became the, the Mercury 7 and, and was very involved uh, then afterwards, Bob Vos was, in, in, in divi- defining the, um, the, the scientific agenda for the mission. I, I know that I've suggested that science wasn't foremost in Kennedy's mind, and it wasn't. But it certainly was foremost in the minds of, of uh, many people at NASA and in the scientific community broadly. And so, so Bob helped to, to, to set that agenda uh, for, for Glenn's flight and others. I love the research that you did. Because, and, and you must be very proud of that personally because that, that was enormous. It's an enormous part of the book. Some of the materials, and you talk a little bit here with us about the recording of Glenn's kind of last will and testament that, that he made. Where were you able to find all of that? Because that must have taken, that's a lot more than just a needle in a haystack, it seems. It, it is. There's always serendipity involved in these things. You open the right file and there's something that you were not looking for. And that's thrilling as a researcher. And I was lucky to have that experience a number of times in this project. I will say we, we owe it all to John Glenn because he saved everything. He saved everything, and not just from the day he became an astronaut, but going back to his childhood. Uh, the files are, are filled with papers that he wrote in high school and pamphlets, uh, route maps for, for um, TWA and Pan Am that he saves when he was a kid who was obsessed with flight. He wasn't going to get to go on any of these flights, but he, he saved these pamphlets anyway and, and saved them for the rest of his, his life. So um, he also took a lot of notes on things, which uh, really allowed me to, to create a, a richness to this story I, I wouldn't have otherwise. And he wrote letters home from World War II and, and Korea. He kept a diary during World War II. Um, there's, there's a lot here to, to draw from, and, and I felt very lucky to, to be able to find those resources in his archives at Ohio State. It's a great collection. Amongst all that research, what was it that you learned about the tech you know, some of the tech aspects of the of space flight and, and, and the ship itself. What, what impressed you most in, in this research? Well, I think one of the, the things, uh, you know, there's that, that cliche that many people know that, that you're building the plane while flying it. <laughs> and that, that was, um, they, they were building the spacecraft while flying it. And mm-hmm. every one of these, every one of these uh, space flights in Project Mercury was a test flight. They were testing new components. They were testing new practices. They were learning from the last flight and applying it to the next flight. And then it would just sort of go down the chain. And Mercury was, in, in, in essence, a, a preparation for Project Gemini, which followed, which had larger capsules that would fit two astronauts. And Gemini existed to prepare for Apollo, which of course would would ultimately uh, lead to the, the the goal of which was was the lunar landing. So everything was a, a set of, of of steps and tests, and and what that meant was that every time they went up, there was a lot of this that was untested. And for Glenn, and this was one of the things that that I didn't understand until I really got uh, into into the project, 
is that uh, Glenn was the first to ride the Atlas rocket. Uh, the, the, the two Americans that preceded John Glenn in space, Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom, they had ridden uh, a Redstone rocket. And the Redstone was seen as very reliable, but it wasn't very powerful. And so it wasn't powerful enough to send them into orbit. It was powerful enough to send them very briefly into space, up and down. They essentially shot the capsule up, and then it dropped down to Earth, and the whole thing was over in 15 minutes. You needed a more powerful rocket to propel something very heavy, like a capsule with a man in it, into space. That had to wait for the Atlas, but the Atlas had a kind of terrible track record. It was constantly exploding on the launch pad, and it's the reason, ultimately, that there were so many delays in the program was that they were waiting for the Atlas to, to seem safe. And, and even and safe is a relative term. Uh, on the eve of, of Glenn's flight, the president of the company that built the Atlas rocket, a company called Convair Astronautics, had all, invited all the press, the nation's press, to the factory so he could brag about the missile and how safe it was and so forth. But when they pressed him, they said, how safe is it? What, what, would you, what kind of rating would you, would you give this in terms of the likelihood? Of a, of a safe flight, and he said 80%, which meant that he was conceding on the eve of Glenn's flight that there was a one in five chance that this rocket was not going to work. And, you know, those, those were the stakes. So, you know, what, what struck me was that right down to the last moments before liftoff, there was essentially an ongoing conversation, and sometimes it was an ongoing argument about what was safe and what wasn't what would work and what probably wouldn't. Everything on that capsule had backups to backups. Every system, the, the principle was redundancy, that if this failed, that there was a backup, and if that failed, then there was a backup to that. But you couldn't anticipate everything that could go wrong. And that was the thing that worried Glenn, and that was the thing that worried the engineers, and ultimately the American people. Fascinating stuff. Our guest, of course, is Jeff Sheshel. Jeff Sheshel is going to be Presenting at the Smithsonian Associates Wednesday, June 23rd. The title of the presentation is How Space Became a Cold War Battleground. Again, we're going to put up links to where our audience can find out more information about the presentation and Jeff Sheshel and his new book, Mercury Rising. But thanks so much for your time today, uh, for being so generous and answering all of these great these, these questions about this great story. It is really remarkable to look back and, uh, and still be learning about this wonderful time in our history. But thanks for all the research and, and your time today. Well, thanks so much, Paul. It's been great talking to you. My thanks to Jeff Sheshel. Jeff Sheshel will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates June 23rd, 2021, and the title of his presentation is How Space Became a Cold War Battleground. You can find out more in our show notes. My thanks as well to the Smithsonian Associates team for all they do to support the show. Of course, my thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please be well, stay healthy and vaccinated, and remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.